So I'd very, very much like to welcome everyone to this event, whether you're here in person, here in Manchester, or whether you're watching via our live stream, something we would never have thought of doing pre-COVID. I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of the Conservative Middle East Council. 40 years ago, CMEC, as we're known, was requested to be set up by the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, to enable parliamentarians to understand and better get to know this extraordinarily important, turbulent, fascinating and beautiful part of our world. Since that time, CMEC has been forging and nurturing and enabling relationships between Conservative parliamentarians and society more broadly and the Middle East. Now, following Brexit and with the emphasis on global Britain, these relationships have never, ever been more important. Just as with diplomacy, so with trade, trust and understanding are absolutely fundamental to every aspect of our relationship. I'm extremely delighted and honoured to be joined here today by some very, very esteemed guests, actually not only on this panel, but also in the audience. We have His Excellency Sheikh Fawaz uh, bin Mohammed Al Khalifa, who is the Kingdom of Bahrain's ambassador to the United Kingdom. We have His Excellency Mr. Nabil Ben Khedda, who is the Republic of Tunisia's ambassador to the UK. We have none other than Baroness Nicholson, who perhaps needs no introduction, who is the chair of the, is the Prime Minister's trade envoy for the Federal Republic of Iraq and president of the Iraq Britain Business Council. Baroness, thank you for joining us. She has to, Baroness has to go at four o'clock, so here to pick up the reins as well is Ashley Goodall, who is the marketing consultant at the Iraq British Business Council. But in particular, I'd like to thank um, two guests in our, in our front row. We have two ambassadors here who I'm afraid I might ask you to come in on a couple of questions, so you don't get a free ride, Your Excellencies. Um, His Excellency, the Ambassador for the UAE, and His Excellency, His Royal Highness, the Ambassador for Saudi Arabia. We'll start off with just a brief overview, and our panellists will answer some questions, and then I will open it up to the floor. And I may ask, I'm afraid, our off-duty ambassadors whether they would be prepared to take some questions as well, if they would like. They can signal to me or walk out if they feel this is a very bad idea. Um, but first, Your Excellency, um, I'll come to you first, and I'm going to ask everyone this question. What does Brexit and what does global Britain look like from your part of the world, from, from where, you, where, where you represent, um, and what are the key opportunities that you see? Your Excellency, if I may start with you, Brexit Britain from Bahrain. Well, it's not just Bahrain, I think I can speak on behalf of uh, my GCC counterparts uh, here uh, we look at uh, Britain as uh, our uh, largest trading partner, and uh, we look uh, at Britain as uh, a strategic partner as well. So uh, from from that, we are looking forward for uh, an FTA agreement. Uh, we announced that uh, the is actually the General Secretary of the GCC is coming uh, next week to uh, to London to. Uh, with his chief uh, negotiator uh, alongside the Minister of Commerce from Bahrain. So uh, the FTA between the GCC and the UK is coming along and uh, hopefully we can sign sometime soon. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. We'll just sort out the microphone so we're a little bit more organised. And of course, the GCC is a, is a long-established trade partner for the UK. Um, Your Excellency... North Africa, Tunisia, is not quite such an established trade partner to the UK as perhaps the Gulf, but what does Brexit Britain look like from North Africa and Tunisia, and, and what opportunities do you specifically see? First of all, uh, I would like to thank you, Charlotte, for inviting me to join uh, this uh, fringe event. Uh, so I'm, I'm really delighted to, uh, to be uh, speaking today. And uh, I thank all my colleagues who are attending this event. Uh, of course, we're, when we, uh, you know, we thought about you know Brexit, we thought about having you know a bilateral relationship with uh, with Britain uh, that uh, you know could be a great opportunity to develop trade. As you uh, mentioned, uh, you know we we're starting from a quite low level, although. If we go back to history, Tunisia and Britain have been trading, you know, since Roman times. 
So that uh, goes a long, long way ago. Uh, however, in modern times, let's say uh, we, because of our, uh, you know, uh, association agreement with the European Union, our close links with the European Union, we we have, uh, you know, uh, you know, we are trading with with Europe as as a whole. Uh, now that Britain has come out from Europe, uh, we really see that there is an opportunity now to establish uh, bilateral mechanism to, uh, mechanisms to develop trade. This, uh, I'm afraid, is not going to happen you know, very quickly because we, we need to work on uh, you know, our business people, uh, traders, to become more familiar with each other. And as you rightly mentioned, um, you know, the fact that we uh, we we don't belong to, to the Commonwealth. We have more, uh, you know, closer relations uh, with uh, with France. We uh, our in, uh, objective is to try to diversify our partners, and we see that uh, Britain, uh, you know, could become very very quickly a, a strategic trading partner for Tunisia, and it is I think uh, in the mutual benefit of. Uh, of both, both countries, both sides. Your Excellency, thank you. It's very easy when we talk about global Britain to feel this is somehow a new thing. But of course, we've been trading with the, with the region and the Middle East for, for many, many centuries. Um, and it's just taking it into a, a new era. Baroness, if I can come to you, you are a great expert on Iraq. Um, could you just talk to us a little bit about the importance of Iraq and trade with Iraq for Britain? Thank you very much indeed, Charlotte, and could I say at once what a pleasure it is to be with the Conservative Middle East Council. This is an immensely uh, respected body which has a vast amount of knowledge and talent at its fingertips and history as well. So it's the first time I've been invited to speak to you and I'm very honoured to do so. I'm also slightly embarrassed at having to run away four o'clock or 4.15 or something, but that's because British Rail in its various different guises is not exactly the most brilliant transporter I've ever met in my life. However, so, you know, trains keep getting cancelled. I know, awful. I don't think it's anything to do with the government, mind you. Nothing's anything to do with the government that's not working. That's the great thing. Everything that works belongs to the government. Everything that doesn't work belongs to somebody else. <laughs> Probably the opposition. <laughs> I have been very fortunate in my life in having the opportunity to visit nearly all your countries and to do, uh, I hope, a variety of one or two helpful things. I'm ashamed to say that the ambassador on my right, I have not yet uh, tormented him <laughs> by visiting his wonderful nation, but I, I, I have had the opportunity to work a great deal in the Islamic Republic of Iraq and in the other nations that are here today. And it's a very great pleasure, therefore, to be among your esteemed company. I um, started work in Iraq um, some time ago. I was concerned at the level of public health following so many different wars, so much conflict. Uh, I mean, at the moment, Iraq, which is a nation that I love dearly, wonderful people, uh, it has five and a half million orphans. Colleagues, don't forget that. That's something to think about. Children with no father, children, many of them, with no mother either. And that's the thing that hurts my heart. And of course it also has, with so many orphans, it has many widows. So women like me, I'm a happy widow. My husband left me well provided for, very comfortable, and I have many relations. So I'm a widow, not because I wanted to be one, but because the good God took my husband away a bit earlier than I would want him to do. Uh, but other widows living on the streets, unable to do anything else to feed their children except to sell their bodies. That is the most horrible fate for any woman. I started in Iraq for those reasons. Quite soon I realized that in order to get people off the streets, one has to have work. You have to have things for people to do, which others will buy so that they can start to earn a living. In other words, none of us, none of us like living on charity. It is essential sometimes, and of course when you're a child, there's nothing you can do to earn a living. 
So I then started something that I named, with the permission of the Prime Minister of Iraq and the President of Iraq, I named it the Iraq Britain Business Council. Not, not the Iraq British Business Council, because my Britain is international. We are one of the most outward-looking nations of the globe. We have to be. We're a small rocky island, and if we don't move around a bit, nothing will ever happen. So we are one of the most outward-looking of nations, as is reflected on our huge and brilliant diversity of population and multiplicity of wonderful visitors. Indeed, I think that we have um, the largest quarter, uh, the largest quartier of France, of, uh, even more, I think, than bits of Paris in South Kensington, which is why there's such delicious croissant there. And we also have most of the young Germans living in, uh, running the city of London. So, and then we have, for example, in the National Health Service, we have a vast number, mercifully, of highly talented Iraqis and others. So I then began the Iraq Britain Business Council, also a charity, also an effort which is not for profit, but in order to make work and went and knocked on the door of all the big businesses and said, come on, you've got to help. It's no good just um, digging oil out of the ground or whatever you happen to be doing. You've also got to get people employed. And so, as Ashley will tell you, uh, the Iraq for which he very kindly gives time to both the charities, um, he, uh, we have made tens, not us making it, but the businesses that we've drawn in and looked after and loved and supported and encouraged, they have made tens of thousands of jobs, proper jobs, good jobs, jobs that mean something. And that's what's so exciting. And then in the middle of it all, quite apart from the public health, we also have uh, schools, orphan schools, the orphan school which the Emir, the late Emir of Kuwait financed, for example, small and wonderful for orphans in the bottom end of the back end of the poorest bit of Basra. I, as you can see, believe powerfully that Iraq is a wonderful neighbour. She's had difficulties, but I'm sure she's coming through them. I have an election on the 30th of this month, which I think will be a good election. I've monitored two Iraq elections earlier. I've monitored 134 elections in the world, so I do know a little bit about um, good elections, and both elections in Iraq have been exceptionally clean and wonderful. And so I'm very hopeful, very positive, with a good outcome, and I'm looking forward to all of us uh, rebuilding the bits and pieces of Iraq that have um, fallen by the wayside, and above all else, helping the widows and the orphans. Thank you very much. Baroness, thank you very much for reminding us all that, that trade is not dis distinct and uh, disassociated from social issues. It's quintessentially part of it. Now, I'm going to ask each of you, what's at the front of your shop window for your particular nation? What are you most excited about, be it goods or services? What do you most want us to know about here in the UK? And I'm going to mix it up a bit, and Your Excellency, I'm going to start with you. Well, uh, I think when you look at Tunisia, it's quite a diversified uh, economy. Uh, and uh, we are uh, basically, it's an uh, export-driven economy. So uh, we are uh, working at you know, very high standards, uh, lots of uh, manufacturers, in, in, in Europe uh, and even in the UK are sourcing in, in Tunisia their products. So I'm, I'm uh, number one, uh, well, I, I, I'm trying now to focus on bringing in olive oil because, you know, uh, I think here, you know, people, uh, they're not familiar with, uh, you know, where the olive oil, best olive oil is being, you know, uh, produced. And I think Tunisia definitely has one of the best olive oil in the world. And, uh, and I, I hope that one day consumers, consumers here in the UK will enjoy the benefits of, uh, uh, we are the first uh, producer of organic olive oil. But if you look at our exports, uh, they are mostly uh, uh, manufacturing, manufactured goods. So that, that means that you know, we have to look at Tunisia as a good source of supply for many, many goods including, you know, uh, you know I, I, when the UK experienced some shortage in PPE, for instance, we're looking now how uh, to get some Tunisian manufacturers looking increasingly to the UK to supply those kind of, you know, quite sensitive uh, and uh, much needed uh, uh, products. 
textile Tunisia has been always one of the you know uh, first uh, largest suppliers of garments to the UK, you know, and and uh, to the to the Europe and even to the US. Uh, those are uh, sectors where I see there is a strong potential. We just need to work, uh, you know, uh, more. As I said in the beginning, uh, more, uh, you know, bilaterally rather than going through uh, other countries. And uh, to do that, we we need to. Uh, it's a uh, sort of pedagogy that we have, you know, have to sit around the table and you know, get people, you know, negotiate deals. Uh, and I think both governments are very keen to do that. And by the way, there is now a, uh, a technical assistance program that is being now uh, implemented in Tunisia by uh, a UK consultancy to just to get Tunisian and the British, you know, speak to each other and try, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, look at, you know, how we can increasingly work, uh, work together. Thank you, Excellency. I'm not going to be impartial. Try Tunisian olive oil. It is, um, dare I say it, the best, at risk of upsetting everybody else. <laughs> your, your Excellency, if I can come to you, and I'm afraid, um, if it's all right, Your Excellency, Your Highness, I might ask you as well to just give a few comments on, on opportunities in the Gulf. But uh, first, Yashik. Thank you. Well, we just, uh, our governments have just completed the joint uh, trade and investment uh, review. Uh, at the end of June, and uh, we're looking to complete that with the final consultation uh, starting uh, from October. Uh, I think that's the uh, date was set. Uh, from this, we're looking at uh, wide ranges, uh, wide range of uh, areas that we could cooperate. Since our economies do not really compete each other, we produce uh, totally different produces than the UK does, but. Uh, we're looking at uh, basically agriculture, food and drink, education, healthcare, life sciences, financial services, environmental, green technologies, and renewable energies. So we're looking at a variety of uh, sectors, and uh, hopefully, uh, once uh, the uh, consultation is done, we'll start negotiating, most likely beginning of uh, 2022. and. Uh, We'll have a final uh, free trade agreement uh, between the GCC and the UK. Thank I don't you. know if you can add uh, Your Royal Highness or uh, Your Excellency. Um, certainly, I mean, I think it's it's vast, really. Uh, what the the region, um, the Gulf, and the region has to, I'll just hold that, has to has to offer, and particularly from the UAE's perspective, you know, I think it's across the board. It's all of the fundamentals of a very strong relationship, but really with the ambition to take it much, much further. Um, so, you know, we, we, the, His Highness was here uh, and they um, announced the partnership for the future with the Prime Minister, uh, you know, with investment into the UK economy across energy, life sciences, infrastructure, technology. Um, so there's all these fundamentals, as His Excellency was saying, Sheikh Fawaz, on the free trade agreement. Ah, fantastic. That's great. Um, we, our, our economies generally uh, complement one another in sectors. So I think there's real... Um, you know, high ambition there to strike uh, a competitive free trade agreement. But I think there's many other sectors, you know, when, we, when you look to the Emirates, uh, when it comes to advanced manufacturing uh, and our exports to the UK, um, from retail sector, um, you know, I think the GCC is very ambitious in its desire to liberalise um, the visa regime and make it easier for uh, our, our citizens to visit here and spend uh, on, on the economy, the, and, and that's you know that's something. To, so it's across the board, but ultimately, I think it's the human capital um, that you know our, our, our countries share, um, and the, the long history that we have together. And I think that's something that that plays in well to global Britain. So that's really sort of my uh, two cent. Your Royal Highness. <coughs> Thank you, Charlotte. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, and and wonderful to hear from all the colleagues. There's not a huge amount, much more to add. Uh, the GCC is is very similar, but we are also different, um, and I think uh, we are well on our way to um, agreeing a free trade agreement. And it's it's never simple, but it's um, as His Excellency Sheikh uh, Fawaz said, we don't compete in many things, and I think that's a, a benefit, and that's where we should be focused: is where we can 
best provide for each other in partnership rather than, than compete against each other. And, and luckily, naturally, that works. Um, I think one thing that all of us, um, not just in the GCC but otherwise, are looking for is greater investment from the UK into our part of the world. It's not a one-way uh, traffic. We have every single um, uh, development area in the GCC as a whole, not just Saudi Arabia, from education to tourism to infrastructure to developing our own manufacturing abilities to uh, um, uh, healthcare. And we in the GCC in particular are very much looking forward to jumping ahead of where we are in, a, in the development process. Um, and so getting help to do that so that you know, it's not about doing things uh, um, as fast as everyone else. It's about doing it a bit faster, otherwise you're falling behind. Um, and so we're very much looking at where we can jump ahead into the next, you know, whether it's AI, uh, future technologies, um, huge opportunities both ways. And like <clears throat> the UAE, we'll hopefully be announcing some investment uh, uh, pro projects in the UK. But we're very much looking at sharing your skills and abilities that you've developed in, here in the UK over many, many years and bringing that and learning from that um, in, in our region. I think uh, there's a great opportunity as we're going through massive development and change to join that with the new global Britain in the post-Brexit Brexit world. Yeah. Director, thank you so much. No, no, no problem. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Charlotte, uh, for uh, arranging uh, uh, this gathering. It's really important uh, for us to see uh, the audience and uh, uh, listen from uh, my colleague, uh, uh, His Excellencies and uh, Royal Highness, uh, their views and the Baroness about uh, their experience and the views for the future of the relationship between uh, the Middle East and, uh, and the UK. Actually, uh, for GCC in particular and uh, the Arab region, we are looking forward to, uh, to enhance um, our uh, uh, trade cooperation uh, in terms of economies. Uh, uh, human capital, as uh, Mr. Mansour uh, mentioned, uh, many of our uh, students uh, studying uh, uh, here uh, uh, and many many aspects we are uh, ready for this we we believe uh, in Qatar in sport to bring uh, people uh, together we have uh, next month uh, uh, FIFA Arab uh, Cup uh, in preparation for the next year uh, World, World Cup we would love to see you know uh, uh, English fans and fans from all around the world coming uh, to Qatar. We have many things to, to offer as a region, as His uh, Royal Highness uh, mentioned. We are complementing each, uh, each other. Uh, we are uh, set ready for the cooperation. And this is what we want. Uh, we want uh, easier uh, uh, visa uh, regime for our uh, citizens who uh, come here to uh, uh, spend money and they used to come here for uh, ages and we want this to to continue and and flourish we don't want them to prioritize or uh, favor uh, EU over uh, over the the UK because of uh, the uh, uh, tax free shopping and uh, easier visa regime this is what we want uh, please uh, uh, let uh, us know what uh, what you want. Thank you. And, <laughs> we get a lot of bang for our buck at these events, and there's a whole lot of event to have on sport and our, our trade and diplomacy on sport. We also have the Deputy Ambassador for Kuwait here, and I'm going to pounce on you and surprise you. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I wasn't prepared, but uh, I think uh, uh, their excellencies and, and my fellow colleague from Qatar uh, covered the uh, the, the trade aspects, uh, but but, but I, I want to touch on on the more strategic strategic and and and, and, uh, and the defense side as well. So the aftermath of, of, of the, the aftermath of, of the Afghanistan uh, situation and 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 the the issue of of, uh, of securing the the, the maritime uh, trade routes uh, actually necessitates. A closer uh, partnership with uh, between the GCC and and, and UK in terms of of uh, ensuring uh, the safety of, of of international trade and and 
and and and, and working to, 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 together to uh, to ensure stability in the in the whole region. So that that, that, that that's what what I want what I wanted to uh, to highlight, uh, and I believe my uh, my uh, the, the extensions covered the. Uh, uh, the, the, the other uh, aspects of the relationship, because you know, you know, the the overall relations are are very co complex and, and it, it, it is a multi-dimensional relations. But this the, uh, the, the in, in terms of, of, of the current uh, uh, situation and, and 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 the development of of, of the uh, issues, uh, regional issues, that's what, what what's more important now. Thank you so much. And once it reminds you, the politics is so siloed, we think of trade as just trade, but actually it's social and security as well. Actually, I'm going to come to you very briefly. What's front and centre of Iraq's shop window? Well, I was just going to say uh, about the, the original question about uh, what does Brexit look like, and just to say that I think there's an opportunity for us now to have a direct relationship with Iraq rather than maybe going through uh, the EU and uh, uh, having to accommodate that. So as a direct relationship, that's very healthy. In terms of Iraq, it's a bit anomalous compared to a lot of the companies here because um, obviously there's been conflict for 20, 30 years, and so the economy is uh, trying to stabilize. And at the moment, there appears to be a lot more stability in Iraq, which is the good news. Uh, the oil price is up, which is another piece of good news. Um, I, I would call Iraq a catch-up economy. And on that basis, there's a lot that needs to be done, right from infrastructure through to banking, agriculture, is particularly important, and even consumer goods. We're looking at a country of 40 million people that are growing very fast. Uh, they're young people as well, uh, and they're quite tech-savvy, some of them. They've all got phones. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in Iraq, but the challenges are such that you have to provide work for them. And as a private sector organization that probably accounts for about 40% of uh, Iraq's GDP, our members, that is, um, uh, we, we're very keen that the private sector has to thrive and um, there's a lot of legacy of the, the state sector uh, and that is quite difficult to manoeuvre and uh, you know, setting up businesses is, is tricky but I think the government understand this and they're beginning to move and beginning to reform. So as soon as things start moving in terms of making it easier to set up businesses um, and to um, stabilise the, the, the economy, there's a lot of opportunity in Iraq, particularly for the British. And finally to say that originally um, the Brits helped set up Iraq in 1923 and there's a lot of legacy for education and healthcare structures there. Um, I think it's true to say that they look to Britain a lot as a model as a country for law, for governance, and I think there's a lot we have to offer. So British companies can bring know-how, they can bring expertise, they can help Iraqis to stabilize and develop. But there's a long way to go yet, and um, I don't want to oversell Iraq, but basically at the moment it feels a lot more stable. And finally, the, the Baghdad conference recently was pretty significant in that it brought together a lot of people who might be rivals in the area, Iran and Saudi, it's a very interesting diplomatic role developing there. So as long as we can help create stability in Iraq, I think the opportunity for business is going to thrive. Ashley, thank you very much. You've, you've touched a bit there on, on the challenges of doing business. Um, I'm going to ask each of my guests, if, if we have business people here in the room who are thinking of um, branching out in their business to, to work with, in, in and with um, the MENA region, what challenges can they expect and what progress is being made to overcome them? Um, Your Excellency, I'll come to you first. Well, it's important to remove uh, market access uh, barriers, uh, especially in uh, key sectors like uh, transport, healthcare, uh, education, tourism. Uh, also, the visa requirement, as shared by my colleagues, it's important to ease that up, especially for the business community. Uh, currently, uh, visa from both our countries uh, take about two weeks to, to process and uh, filling 12 pages uh, uh, it is quite uh, hectic to to get a, a visa and compare that to what the EU is offering in terms of pricing and um, sort of just ease of uh, access is uh, is quite uh, competitive so um, there is a lot to do uh, in, in Bahrain uh, we've we are fortunate enough to uh, have diversified our economy liberalized our uh, uh, economy quite some time ago, so we're 80 percent uh, dependent on non-oil sector, so we've 
been there. We've started uh, our journey probably ahead of some of our, of our countries uh, in the region. So we've already signed uh, 22 uh, FTAs uh, with various countries around the world. So we've got that experience and we could share it with our colleagues, especially with the upcoming FTA. So um, there are a few barriers uh, in place, but uh, I think we share the same concerns. Thank you, Your Excellency. Um, what you, you touched on it a bit earlier. What barriers still exist? Um, and both, you know, in the UK, what can the UK do better and what barriers still exist um, to trade in Tunisia? I wouldn't say barriers, but first of all, I should have mentioned that uh, Tunisia was the first country to sign a continuity agreement. The right name of it is not con continuities just because we will, you know, are continuing actually to trade on under preferential terms. Uh, you know, uh, so that is something that we have the legal framework in place, uh, which is good. It is uh, it goes beyond trade because it's uh, it's meant to be an association agreement. So there are other mechanisms. We are just now looking how to restructure uh, our bilateral. Uh, uh, you know, um, relationships with uh, with the UK and this. Uh, I think we have to be. We need to be really ambitious, not just you know to continue to do trade under preferential terms uh, as we used to do when the UK was part of the European Union. We really need to uh, think about how to link investment to trade. You know, uh, Tunisia is is a gateway to. To a continent, to Africa, to uh, you know some neighboring countries as well, uh, we have uh, a strong, heavy presence of foreign companies uh, doing business in Tunisia, uh, sourcing, manufacturing. Uh, so we we really you know through that uh, it it certainly generates more trade, um, and we it's vice versa. It's two ways. It's, it doesn't uh, need to be just you know UK companies uh, investing in Tunisia. It, it can be the other w other way around. Uh, so uh, I I'm I'm not talking to say you know uh, that there is a, a barrier. Barrier you know uh, we are here as as ambassadors. Uh, we try you know to uh, do our best to generate business. But it is uh, economic diplomacy. It's it's a, it's something that is quite difficult because. If we starting like such, such as Tunisia, maybe unlike the Gulf countries, we're starting at a quite low level, which means that we need to build confidence. We need to be, build more understanding between, you know, the uh, uh, business people. Uh, and if they don't see uh, interest in that, if they don't see, you know, profitability benefits, they're not going actually, you know, to. Uh, to do business. So uh, this uh, comes with, uh, uh, as I said, the legal framework is definitely there. Uh, Tunisia presents, has, you know, a strong assets because uh, it's, it's close basically and we, you can get a lorry leaving Tunisia on a Friday and get, you know, all your merchandise here on, on Tuesday. So it's uh, as short as four days uh, from door to door. Uh, so uh, it's, it's open for business. Uh, we want our uh, British friends to look, uh, you know, at uh, Tunisia as really a, a competitive uh, sourcing hub. Uh, for Tunisia, you know, being a small market, they can look for other markets. They can, you know, manufacture in Tunisia and look for other opportunities, you know, beyond Tunisia. And and we we need to do that. We need to facilitate. Uh, visas for business people. We need to facilitate their participation in exhibitions. Our efforts have been, of course, slowed down by, by COVID, but now we look forward to resuming that. Tunisia being now in the red list, it's uh, it's not very helpful. So we look forward to you know some change. That situation has really improved a lot now, and the indicators are are very good at the moment. So I don't see. I don't see a reason why Tunisia should be, uh, you know, should uh, be kept in the, in the list. Uh, so I, we really need now to work together and uh, see how we can do business. We can, you know, uh, such as the business council with Iraq. We have a, a Tunisian British Chamber of Commerce 
they can help you know all British investors or companies to look at the market. The UK, which is the uh, uh, facility, financial facility that is uh, uh, provided by the uh, UK government, uh, has earmarked uh, as much as 2.5 uh, million uh, uh, pounds, which is you know a great amount to try to uh, uh, encourage uh, UK companies. Uh, to look at the the opportunities in Tunisia, so uh, all the of course the British Embassy in Tunisia they doing a great job uh, to speak to uh, business people here and in Tunisia. So uh, this is a joint effort, and I think if we want to see global Britain succeed in our part of the world, uh, we need to make more efforts. And uh, those efforts, I think, should be coordinated in a way, uh, you know, between the, both governments. Your Excellency, thank you. And I, I can see we've got 20 minutes, just under 20 minutes left. I'm going to ask each of our panellists one final question, and I'm going to open it up to uh, questions from the audience. But I, I can see in the audience, I can see faces of business people, I can see some policymakers... To my guests, what would your message to our audience be? What can government, businesses, MPs, peers, what can we do ourselves to increase opportunities and to see global Britain succeed? What is it that we in this room can do? Well, for us and uh, at the GCC, to, to have the FTA succeed, we need to uh, realise the size of trade between the GCC and, and the UK. British companies export over 30 billion worth of goods and services to the GCC. And uh, compare that with China, which is 23 billion. And we're almost double of, of India, which is 18 billion. So I think we're the second or the third largest trading partner with the UK as, as a GCC. Um, our experience when we signed with the US uh, free trade agreement, it almost doubles. So it just gives you an indication of the potential that uh, FTA unlocks in, in, in both our economies. Um, and also from our experience with the US, um, an FTA should be about trade and investment only. Uh, if you include other issues. I know the FTA with the United States, there was a clause that uh, asked us to close the office that boycotts uh, goods uh, and services from Israel. Now, in Bahrain, it passed through Parliament uh, about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, but I know it didn't go through in other countries uh, in the GCC. So making the FTA only about trade is essential. Uh, if we include other items, whether it's human rights or uh, other issues, other political issues, or just complicates things, you will add items, we can add more items as well into that list, and just makes it a bit more complicated. So if we simplify that and make it just about trade, I think it will go a long way and uh, make it easier to sign. I think that's my uh, suggestion to MPs and government officials. So keep, keep it trade. Keep it trade. Yeah, I'm going to come back to you before coming to Ashley. Well, I think we touched upon a very important uh, issue here, is how to link trade to other issues that you know, are not maybe uh, directly linked to trade. But uh, I have in mind, for instance, education. Uh, we, in Tunisia, we have young population uh, with... Uh, highly educated people, uh, and I think if we try to uh, make maybe English become, you know, a business language in Tunisia, um, I, uh, I have nothing, you know, with, uh, with French, you know, I have been educated in French universities myself, and uh, I love French culture, but it's, it's not the, my point. My point is that business have, uh, you know, English has become the, the, the uh, language of uh, of business, uh, we have to make uh, you know uh, English more available to uh, to Tunisian uh, young people, and uh, the British Council is is doing a fantastic job in in, in training the English uh, teachers in Tunisia. 
we need to have more students and that's uh, because education I think is a long-term investment in our relationship if we want really to see people uh, you know people-to-people uh, -people contact through that I am sure we will you know we will have more trade we will have more interest uh, so uh, my my message to to the decision makers here to uh, officials and MPs you know look at our part of the world there are you know plenty of opportunities look at our young people they are you know very talented we have artists we have you know all sorts of people you know musicians try to facilitate you know all sorts of contact uh, bring them over here uh, try to encourage young young British people to go and visit our countries to discover the culture and it's good you know that the CMIC has been doing uh, that, you know, through delegation, through... So it's, it's always good is, is to look, of course, to look at business, how, how we can, you know, uh, achieve business. But more than that, more importantly for me, is if we want to build something, you know, on the longer term, we really need to, you know, uh, speak to the people, speak, you know, the culture is... We have a fantastic culture here. It's... it's uh, it's not visible in Tunisia enough, I think. I am not speaking on behalf of Tunisia, of course. Um, you know, we, you have the musicians, you have the artists. Why don't we see more British artists in, in Tunisia? So we, we really need to bridge those uh, bridges. And I think if you, you know, with the, uh, with the, the UK, you know, want to be a global actor, I think that's through that, that soft power, it can accomplish, you know, uh, a lot uh, in, in, in Tunisia and, and elsewhere. So uh, this is my, my message, really. I, I, I have trying, I've been trying, you know, I've been here now for four years, and I can tell you, you know, that education, higher education, has been really, you know, a major focus in, in, in my work and uh, in my contacts with the British government. And uh, it, it's good that, I, hopefully, then after COVID, we will see more people traveling. You know, uh, you know, from from Britain to Tunisia and vice versa. Thank you, Your Excellency, and, and CMEC looks forward to promoting and facilitating that as much as we can. Ashley, finally, to you. I've got three points that would make things easier for trade. The first one is expanding UK EF. Uh, which is very useful, and there's a much greater demand to use it in Iraq, uh, particularly from our members and for the private sector. So that would be excellent. Uh, they're not giving money away. They're just simply underwriting risk, effectively. So I think that could be rapidly expanded. Uh, the second thing is there should be a lot more support for SMEs, particularly in Iraq, uh, for translation services, for visas, uh, for all the things that help and enable businesses to happen. So I think that could be expanded. And the third thing, uh, particularly with Iraq, is allowing British banking to remit money around the place between the UK and Iraq instead of having to go through America half the time. So that would make life a lot easier. Ashley, thank you very much indeed. We have 10 minutes left, and I'm going to open it up to questions, and I can see one, two, three, four already. Can I ask you, A, to say who you are, um, and if your question is directed specifically at one of the members of the panel, please say. Otherwise, I will ask members of the panel if they want to answer the question to just let me know and, um, and anyone who wants to answer can. So I'm going to have to, a gentleman over there and I'm going to take two at a time. So I'm going to go across the room, one, two, and then I'll come to three, four afterwards. Gen uh, sir. What do the panel think in terms of opportunities for renewable energy opportunities between the UK and um, their respective areas, countries, renewable energy. I could say briefly that uh, Iraq is already uh, inflecting that way because they've got an energy deficit. And the first thing they're doing is capturing uh, flared off gas to make that into energy. So Shell are working uh, on that any, any moment now. And uh, there's a big initiative to do solar power. So that's on the way and, and they're very aware of it. I think uh, there are a number of initiatives uh, in our part of the world um, being drawn up uh, right now, especially with COP26 coming up. So uh, although uh, there are a uh, few initiatives uh, currently, like solar power and wind power and um, trying to depend on nuclear power and trying to depend less on, uh, on fuel and start using... Uh, 
something that's sustainable. But uh, I don't want to go into the details because we are leaving some uh, for our delegates to announce uh, the new initiatives at COP26. So uh, I will leave you in suspense till then. Spoiler, spoiler alert. Yes, if I can answer quickly about renewable energy. Um, which has used to be the flagship of UK investment in Tunisia you know, uh, 20 years ago. And we're looking now at uh, a major UK uh, company to look at the opportunities in terms of uh, renewable energies in Tunisia. We have quite an ambitious uh, plan to get to 30% of renewable energy um, uh, so uh, in by 2030. So that's quite close, actually. Um, so we're looking at you know how at this particular sector, and we we are uh, at the moment just uh, starting discussion to uh, conclude a sort of a memorandum of understanding between both governments to see uh, what we can do together. Uh, and uh, as my colleague from Bahrain said, because of COP26, that is now very much. Uh, in a, let's say a priority in um, in our discussion with uh, with the British government. So we're looking at uh, all sorts of initiatives, small and and big, and hopefully it is one of the sector where we see there is a strong uh, potential. Tunisia, you know, being a place with a lot of sun and and wind. It's uh, and it's a business-friendly environment. So I, we expect that there will be a few companies that. Uh, will be interested uh, in looking at uh, you know uh, we have what what they can uh, do in in Tunisia and, and the, it's uh, as i said it's a priority for uh, the Tunisian government at the moment thank you i'm afraid there's no such thing as a, a free glass of water your royal highness and saudi everyone thinks of oil but the kingdom's moving to a less oil dependent economy uh, very much so there's a huge amount of space um, for working together the united kingdom um, not just Saudi, but the, the region as a whole. But uh, as far as Saudi, like my colleague from Bahrain, um, we have two events where we might uh, want to announce some stuff, so I have a double spoiler problem. On the 22nd uh, of uh, this month, we've got the, we're launching our Saudi Green Initiative properly, and you'll hear a lot more about what we want to achieve there. And at COP26, we obviously want to play a role with the world at, at large. But I mean, just on a few highlights, we are committed to um, producing 50% of our energy from renewable sources by 2030, which is not a small uh, jump for us to make. <coughs> our Minister of Energy said, um, we, we are no longer a producer of hydrocarbons, we're a producer of energy. Um, we're building one of the largest hydrogen, green hydrogen plants in the world in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia. And Actually, as far as shipping is concerned, there's a lot of work that to be done um, in developing the hydrogen uh, capabilities of the shipping industry, which I, th I think, and I think my government um, uh, is, is pushing towards uh, developing that industry, and there needs to be a lot of investment to make that work at the moment. It's not practical. It may become so, but it'll only become so if we make it happen. Um, and that's part of <coughs> the sort of green industrial revolution that we want to see and and be part of. Um, the Prime Minister said not long ago that he wants Britain to be the, uh, to wind what Saudi Arabia is to oil. Well, we want to be to wind what Saudi Arabia is to oil, so he's got competition. <laughs> Perhaps we can compete and work together instead of, uh, I mean, we can work together rather than competing. Thank you very much. Spoiler alert, remember you almost heard it here first. Um, there's a question, gentleman here, and actually I'm going to take two this time, gentleman here and then lady here, and then finally, so I'll come to you. Thank you very much. Phil Rosenberg from the Board of Deputies of British Jews, and it's great to be here among friends. We've had um, both His Excellency Nabil and uh, His Excellency Sheikh Fawaz at, at events we've done over recent years, um, and thank you for your long-term friendship to the UK Jewish community. Obviously, in the last year, a seismic event was the Abraham Accords, and, which has really opened new opportunities, and I just wanted to ask both panelists, uh, particularly in view of the recent event in Iraq as well, where, where there was talk of kind of expanding that, the desire among some quarters to expand that there as well. What are the opportunities that the Abraham Accords created? And also, what, what can we do both in the UK and the Middle East to expand the circle of peace? 
Thank you very much. And I'm going to also ask a lady here to do her question because we're just running. Hi, I'm Dr. Fatima Delemi. Um, Besides, I'm, um, I would say, a conservative politician. Um, I'm the director of the Scottish-Iraqi Association, Iraqi, Scottish, and British. Uh, it's actually, um, I spoke to Baroness, which is, I've written to her, uh, we've been the Scottish-Iraqi Association, and I'm not begging here, highnesses, excellencies, but I think I feel everyone, it's not just a Britain, have the duty to help Iraq. And helping Iraq, in my opinion, as a um, person who's been working in politics as well as Iraqi, it's not with the government. The government, you will not get. Um, these people who are actually eight orphans, eight million orphans in Iraq, that is the latest stat. And every single day, between 90 to 100 women become a widow. They need that help. We send every month food, clothes, med medicine to Iraq. But that is our voluntary and donations from people in Britain. What I'll be asking you, excellencies, sheikhs, uh, prince, princesses, and whatever, to help out the NGOs, not the government, because we know exactly. I sent 365 wheelchair from Britain, donation from the British people, believe it or not, did not get there. Mm kept in, um, in the storages for them. So please, all what I'm asking here, let's help with NGOs in Iraq. Let's sponsor these NGOs who are actually in communication on a daily basis with the people who are actually in desperate need. Thank you. And I'm not begging, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Two very important questions, Abraham Accords and NG, role of NGOs. Um, your Excellency, may I come to you first? Well, we've just celebrated the uh, one-year anniversary, uh, one anniversary of the Abraham Accords <coughs> um, a few weeks ago. And, uh, well, since then, we've uh, established uh, a daily flight to Tel Aviv from Manama. Uh, we just received the foreign Minister of Israel in Manama, and we've signed, I think, about four various agreements uh, with Israel, uh, renewable energy, healthcare, education, and sport. Um, we started uh, our relation not just recently in one year when it was formalized, but uh, I think uh, having the oldest synagogue in the region in Bahrain, which celebrated its 80th uh, anniversary last year. Um, we have a vibrant Jewish community in Bahrain, uh, and uh, so it comes natural to us to have this uh, relationship uh, that uh, we should uh, flourish and continue in the future. So uh, looking forward for that. Um, yes, I actually work for the Amar Foundation, which works in Iraq, and run by Baroness Nicholson, and uh, look after many people in camps, etc. And you're right, it's, it's actually in everyone's interest, because if you don't have social stability, you start to get terrorism. So um, I would say that is really worth looking at the NGOs, and do your due diligence on the NGOs first to make sure that they run effectively and well, and what they're actually delivering, but actually they can make a major difference where government social systems are not in place, quite frankly. So, um, you know, you can often have some very trusted, uh, resilient NGOs that you need to work with, and ultimately will stop terrorism or IS, whatever it is, that's going to come back again if there's no hope. So, very important role to keep society stable. We have time for one final question. His Excellency has to, has to rush off, um, but gentleman here who's waited patiently. My question's probably half been answered because it was on the Abraham Accords too, but would it be fair to say the process which led to them uh, began under the Obama administration? Because uh, Manama and Abu Dhabi started talking to Jerusalem because Washington wasn't interested in their concerns about Iran. And in that respect, are the GCC nations ahead of the UK in realizing we need other friends in the United States? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll just answer it quickly. And I think um, we've started uh, way uh, before uh, that date. Uh, we, if you remember, uh, during the Trump administration, we've organized the Peace for Prosperity conference in Bahrain, where um, basically everybody in the Middle East, including Israel, uh, presented their views on uh, on a future uh, peaceful uh, Middle East where Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs and Jews could uh, live together in a peaceful environment. So there was a lot of ideas that were uh, going back and forth there, and and from that envisioning a peaceful Middle East, envisioning uh, this coexistence, uh, investments in an in, in area that could work together, made it possible for us to sign the Abraham Accord. So uh, it's a number of issues. So it's not just one incident that happened, but I think it's uh, uh, the history of the Jewish community in Bahrain. We have an ambassador who's Jewish, uh, represented Bahrain in the United States. We had uh, a Jewish at the parliament uh, in Bahrain. So for us, it, it, it was easier uh, to make that decision than others. I'm just going to ask each of our panelists, actually, if you have time, you, do you need to go right now? You, go. you go. That, that was your wrap-up. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as, as, you, as His Excellency makes his way out, I'm just going to ask the rest of our panelists just to give final thoughts on what they would like you to leave the room with um, at the top of your mind. Your Excellency, thank you again, Sheikh Fawaz. Um, your Excellency, I'll come to you first. Uh, I think we, uh, we, mentioned, uh, yeah, we mentioned trade in, uh, in goods, um, and I'm thinking uh, maybe uh, you know, trade in services uh, could be a... Uh, could have a strong potential. Um, one of the interesting uh, programs we're working on right now with the British government is to bring Tunisian startups here in the UK to provide some solutions, you know, to uh, uh, IT companies here in the in the United Kingdom. So that is uh, uh, something that uh, where I see uh, a strong potential where we can develop, uh, you know, collaboration. Not not just you know the the normal, uh, let's say, the traditional sectors, we have to look beyond those sectors and, you know, uh, to try to be creative. And I think uh, this could be uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the areas where I see strong potential. Another area, because of the the uh, the, the problem or the issue of the COVID-19 manufacturing, we have to look maybe uh, to manufacture somewhere in the region. Uh, Tunisia could be, you know, a very attractive place where we can uh, manufacture not only for for Tunisia but for other countries as well. And um, you know, uh, certainly for Sub-Saharan Africa, because we we have a, a very very good uh, trading relationship with uh, most of the, especially the French speak speaking Africa um, African countries. So th those are two areas where I think I think we we can uh, build up a strong uh, triangular, let's say. Uh, collaboration with the UK uh, companies. Your Excellency, thank you. Ashley, I'll ask you. Um, yes, Iraq needs support, and it needs it not just from the UK, but from America, France and Germany in particular. And once you've got that stability maintained, it has a lot of potential to grow. It has a population, it has the opportunities. It's got everything in place that just needs modernizing. So um, the UK can offer a lot of help in terms of expanding its uh, UK EF in particular and reducing risk. Uh, the IBBC is very important as a network for private enterprise, which can help develop things rapidly. And um, I think there's some key sectors, particularly agriculture, that can retain its uh, preeminence. Um, health, education, and banking in particular, as it diversifies its economy. So there's a lot of opportunity. If we can keep stability going, things will be good. Right, so you, you yeah, I wanted just to correct the figure. I said that UKF has earmarked 2.5 million. It's 2.5 billion. Uh, pounds for for Tunisia, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, we it's a call for uh, UK companies to make use of that. <laughs> it's a lot in one letter. <laughs> Your Royal Highness, if I might, um, 
thank you. Uh, excellent comments. My colleagues have said, put everything so well, there's not much more to add apart from we need to, particularly coming out of Brexit, which I can tell you in the diplomatic world was a difficult time to engage with the British government for a number of years because the focus was so much on, on Brexit. Then COVID, which made it even more difficult to engage because we were coming out of Brexit and dealing with COVID. Um, and now we're starting to get conversation, communication back up again. Very positive thing. Um, there is so much scope for the United Kingdom to do a lot with our part of the world. And I think um, we need to focus on the partnership aspect of working together rather than <clears throat> what we can do in each other's countries separately. And it covers everything from um, the social, the cultural, energy, uh, defense. Um, all of these things are important. Britain used to play quite a significant role in the world as one of the world's largest empires. It knows how to deal with the world and I think there's a lot of great knowledge here on how to do that and the, the better relationship we can build now as you guys need to become global Britain again, the better we can do and I think this government is well placed to push that forward but also any other future governments. But now's the time. We wait too long, we miss the opportunity and it ain't gonna wait around for us. So. Thank you. Your Royal Highness, thank you very much indeed. And by, by coming to this event, you have all in the audience been part of building and forging that relationship. All that remains is for me to say thank you so much to our panellists, their excellencies, and also to our audience members, you, but in particular, Your Royal Highness and the Deputy Ambassadors we've been very privileged to have here today. Thank you all very much indeed.